name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to the Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. Promoting and maintaining diversity in the workplace has become a priority for financial institutions in recent years. It's now widely accepted that better and more informed decisions are made by diverse groups of individuals. It's better understood that diversity isn't just a cultural or moral imperative. It also leads to better business outcomes. Progress has certainly been made in improving gender diversity, particularly on boards and management teams, and the ratio of male to female in the financial world is generally much improved from what it was a generation ago. But diversity isn't just about gender. Other factors such as race, ethnicity and sexuality must also be carefully considered. In this episode, we're going to talk about diversity, equity and inclusion, or DEI, and the opportunities and challenges associated with diversifying perspectives across the workforce. With me is Scott Amalia, ISDA's CEO. Scott, can you tell us a little bit about our guest for this episode? Sure. We're going to be speaking and joined by Tuvia Borak, Global Head of Policy and Documentation at Goldman Sachs. Tuvia has been a strong advocate for DEI throughout his career, pioneering ambitious new programs at Goldman Sachs and speaking often about his own experiences. He's a sought-after speaker, an activist, and has talked about the importance of not approaching diversity through a single lens. I'm really looking forward to hearing Tuvia's perspective on the importance of pushing further change in DEI. We need to think creatively and progressively about these issues and hearing the diverse experiences and perspectives of market participants is absolutely critical. Tuvia is also at the cutting edge of the industry change leading Goldman Sachs legal documentation function at a time when the industry is pushing even further towards greater digitization and automation. So I hope we'll have time to hear his perspective on that issue as well. Yeah, me too. Right, let's get started with the interview. Tuvia, thanks for joining us on The Swap today. Scott, it's really great to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. You've been a strong advocate for change across all forms of diversity, equity, and inclusion for many years, pioneering programs at Goldman Sachs and beyond. What kind of change have you experienced during your career, and how have you been involved in the promotion of DEI at Goldman Sachs, and where do you believe further work is most urgently needed here? The world has changed. I'm going to date myself now. I entered the workforce full-time in 2003. So all of my internships and all of my applications, you know, when I was in law school, that was 2000, 2001. And the world 20 years ago was a very, very different place. There was no such thing as an affinity group, not at any of the big major law firms. It wasn't talked about at university. No employer had marketing or talked about what their commitment to diversity is and what that looks like. And as a diverse candidate, it was never thought that being diverse is a good thing and that being diverse is your unique selling proposition. And you should talk to that and you're going to add value because you're diverse, because that's just not a conversation that happens. So I'm very, very glad to see that over the two decades, we have seen the needle move. Now, do I think the needle has moved? far enough, it's all relative. Coming from nowhere to something is definitely show that we have made progress. But I think there's a lot more that that needs to happen. And as I think about it, I think the biggest thing that we need to see is a real culture shift across the entire industry. 
And what I mean about that is that it has taken us two decades to just start talking about diversity. Diversity is a statement of fact. People are diverse. That's it. It's a reality. But if we look today, there's a lot of organizations that continue to still grapple with what does diversity mean. You know, there's a McKinsey report that looked at over 2,000 respondents across over 1,000 big companies. And the survey found that respondents said that their organizations, when looking at diversity, and the question was catched around, do you think your organization focuses on diversity in a good way? There were three options. You had either positively, yes, they do, neutral or negative. And it's shocking that in 2019, 31% of respondents globally still felt that it was negative. That's a third. And someone could say, but look, the proportion, two-thirds are saying it's positive. Well, it's not. Only 52% said that it was positive to talk about diversity, which is a statement of fact. When you flip it to look at inclusion, which is, I think, the bigger and more important element, right? You've got diverse talent statement of fact. What do you do with that diverse talent? How do you actually include them? How do you make them a part of the conversation that they feel safe to have a voice so you drive diversity of thought? Their proponents, 61% had a negative view on it. It was only 20% that said it was positive on inclusion. We are 20 years later And this conversation around diversity has been going on for so long. And so while I'm really excited to see that there's a shift, it's a really slow shift. And yes, there's a lot of wins that we should be talking about, but I don't know that there's a lot for us to pat ourselves on the back for, given how long it's taken us. Now, I've been at Goldman. I've just celebrated my 10-year anniversary. I'm very, very fortunate to have been given a lot of opportunities to drive the diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda at Goldman. I currently sit as co-chair of our LGBTQ plus network chapter in the UK, and I'm sponsor for our client experience, diversity, equity, and inclusion forum, which has been brilliant to help herald and steer others in driving diversity and inclusion. But if I think back to some of the more groundbreaking programs that we've been able to achieve at Goldman, It was probably six years ago that when I was still in the legal division, we did a internship day working with a transgender youth charity. And what we looked to do was to bring transgender youth who were in high school to talk and bring them into the firm and say to them, you have the opportunity to have a career in financial services. This is what it looks like for you. Whatever your lived experience have been, Let's see how you've got transferable skills and how we can turn that around. The trans community needs a lot of support. They've needed support now even more so. But it was a community that's not been talked about enough. And so it was brilliant to be able to do that. Otherwise, at Goldman, four years ago, we launched the first ever LGBTQ plus internship into investment banking, which we've now been running for four years in the UK. And... We launched the first ever LGBTQ plus internship insight program into Poland, which we did last year and are continuing. It's been a brilliant, brilliant journey when I think of it through an LGBTQ plus lens, which is where I spend most of my focus from a Goldman perspective. 
So progress is being made. Regulators are more interested in this on the issue of diversity on management teams and boards as a means of achieving diversity of thought and avoiding groupthink. And it feels like the regulators are saying, if you don't do it, we will. What is the right approach on this? We talk a lot about market factors and the market should self-police and get itself to a good place, right? And when we think about the business case for diversity has been spoken about for years, right? That's how you try to engage people to say, there's a business case for this. Your clients need this. Look, it'll help drive your bottom line. That was give or take, right? Not everyone bought into that. Then we started conversations around, look, you want to succeed. You need the best talent, and not just to be able to bring in the best talent, but you want to retain the best talent. How are you going to do that if you're not a great employer that's going to nurture diverse talent and not just bring it in the door, but then be able to embed it to unlock that talent, which is the inclusion piece? Not quite sure that we've seen the market move sufficiently to be able to take that. So do I think regulators are right for going ahead and talking about it? Yeah. No one wants to have a recreation of what we had when we saw Enron and WorldCom and we had that groupthink mentality. And so you may have read in the summer, the Prudential Regulatory Authority, the Financial Conduct Authority and the Bank of England came out with a joint discussion paper in the UK looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the views of the three regulatory bodies is very much that greater diversity should support having a range of views across an organization, while inclusion, which is the piece that we've been talking about, creates the necessary environment for individuals to be able to express their views, speak up, and raise concerns. And it's that raising concerns there which is the challenge on how you make sure that you break down and mitigate the risk of groupthink. And if we think about what it is that regulators are charged with doing, what their objective is, they are there to protect and enhance the stability of financial markets and financial systems. And so how are you going to do that and challenge the potential systemic risk if you're not prepared to address the biggest elephant in the room around how you make sure you've got diversity of thought and potential challenge because different perspectives are really what matter. So what does the research tell us about the opportunity of firms creating a more diverse, bringing broader perspectives, et cetera, to their management teams and boards? Look, if if folks are not worried about the regulatory risk to them, that a regulator is going to come knocking on your door saying, we are concerned, then let me present the business case Again, only because I think the data needs to be repeated over and over. And McKinsey did a great report. They've just come out with their third part of the report, looking at a data set from 2019. And as part of their report, what they did is they looked at over 1,000 large companies across 15 countries across the globe. And they ranked each of the companies looking at their performance. And what performance meant was looking at the total earnings before interest and taxes for each of these companies, comparing that to the natural average there was, and then quartiling all the companies. Once they quartiled them, they then overlaid looking at what the executive teams looked like at each of these organizations. And they looked at it through two lenses. 
gender diversity, and then ethnic diversity. And it was shouldn't be surprising to anyone listening, given what we're talking about, that those in the top quartile from a gender diversity perspective outperformed the fourth quartile by 25%. And then when you added ethnic diversity and looked at it from an ethnic diversity perspective, those that had in the top quartile executive teams that were ethnically diverse, they outperformed the fourth quartile competitors by 36%. The data sets continue to be there that over and over again, you see that it makes good business sense. And interestingly, they, I was quite surprised to see that there, you know, the regulators in the report that I mentioned that came out from PRA, the FCA, and the Bank of England, they actually pointed out that looking at the financial crisis and the fines that were imposed by regulators, there were lower fines on those companies that had greater gender diversity on their boards. We are seeing it from a financial performance perspective, but we're also seeing that those that have greater diversity on their senior teams actually get penalized less because they've not hit as many regulatory fines. Now, is there a danger that organizations can apply their approach to diversity through a single lens such as gender, sexuality, or ethnicity? And what are the drawbacks of this? You've talked about the iterative approach, and maybe firms are taking a step-by-step approach here, but do they risk making some mistakes by going too narrowly in this? Yes, but I think they do. So first of all, any organization that's, that's willing to do anything is already progress. So I, I don't want to discount that. But I think the biggest concern or the risk that lies out there once you start looking at people through individual lenses is the fact that you start pigeonholing individuals. And it's something that I, I brought up in my TED Talk which is that I think sometimes what ends up happening by looking at people through individual lenses is you forget that we are all multifaceted individuals. So I know a lot of folks in the DEI space refer to intersectionality. For me, I'm a simple person. That that word's too complicated. I see it as multifaceted diversity, right? We are all individuals. We will be diverse for many, many reasons. And if you only apply looking at individuals through a single lens, you try to start fitting them into boxes. And no individual will really fit into a box. And what I mean by that is I'm, I'm an out professional. So yes, I very proudly and folks know I tick the LGBTQ plus box. And so it's very easy for people to go, ah, Tuvia is gay. I understand what that means. I understand what support he needs and what struggles he might need from a diversity perspective. The truth of the matter is that in my day-to-day life, being gay is not probably my biggest challenge anymore. It's actually the fact that I'm a single parent and I'm a single male parent. That, yes, it's associated with the fact that I'm LGBTQ plus and how I can start a family. But if you only think of me through an LGBTQ lens, most people don't associate that with the parenting element or being a single parent or a male single parent. And so it is very easy to pigeonhole me and for someone to say, well, we know how to support Tuvia from a diversity perspective. So the way I like to think about it is, yes, it is important to think about individuals and the different ways that they are diverse. What I'd love to challenge folks to think about is thinking about people through an authenticity lens. 
And the minute we start talking about authenticity and bringing authentic people out in our offices and in our workforces, what we are really then doing is going, look, we recognize you as an individual and we want to support you as an individual. So why don't you tell us what it is that you need in order to bring your authentic self to work? It is a challenge. Don't get me wrong. To go ahead and start framing everything from, you know, through the lens of authenticity is not going to be easy by any stretch of the imagination. But that's where I think we really all need to get to. That's a great point. Now, ISDA, we've participated in the UK Women in Finance Charter. I think we partly participated because it was a engaged with the regulators. It also gave us a framework to begin to define what success looks like in terms of beginning our process. So setting targets to improve female representation and publishing annual progress reports is how this organization works. But we recognize this is only part of the journey and it needs to be about the culture as well as setting targets and quotas. We've agreed certain board targets and we've agreed certain management team and leadership team targets in terms of our senior management. How should companies think about embedding the DEI strategy into their culture so it continues to grow and flourish? Huge kudos to you and to ISDA for signing up and being charter signatories. And for those that don't know, I might just take a moment because I think there are, you know, there's four principles that ISDA has agreed to and pledged to doing in order to promote gender diversity, which is at least one member of your senior executive team is going to be accountable and responsible for gender diversity and inclusion. You've set internal targets, like we talked about, the publishing your progress against those targets, which I think is super key to do, and then to have an intention around ensuring that there's no pay gaps. And what that all gets you to is you are looking to be accountable. So it's not just that you are talking the talk, that you're saying, look, we are willing to be held to this. And the minute you start publishing and making it public, it shows a real genuine commitment because you are opening yourself up to challenge, not just from Insta members, but from the entire market because it's public. And I think that's where the biggest risk has lied or the biggest impediment to the success of driving diversity, equity, and inclusion and why it's taking so long is that accountability piece has been missing. And it's something that regulators have started talking to. Regulators have even gone so far as to suggest, look, not only do we maybe want to start requesting regulatory reporting around your diversity, right? So the transparency point, which you're already doing as a charter signatory, but above and beyond that, you know, there have been questions raised by regulators saying, well, do we think compensation needs to be tied to your performance against your commitments to diversity, right? And if you think about anything else that an organization does, when we talk about commitments to business strategies and anything else related thereto, compensation is often connected, right? You are either progressing against the goals that you've set. And so tick the box, you have done well, or you've not achieved. And therefore, that is not successful performance. When it comes to DEI, the culture continues to be, unfortunately, in most places, that it's talked about. And it sounds like it's a nice to have rather than a must have. 
And so anything that's going to drive a culture of accountability is a great first step. I think the other key thing which has been missing is the creation of psychological safety. Anyone who's interested in psychological safety, there's a lot of great reading on it based on a project, Aristotle, which Google ran to try to figure out what is it that makes teams successful. And that's where this notion of psychological safety came out. And what was most fascinating was that the success of a team has nothing to do with the actual skill set of the individuals, but it has to do with the environment that you've created. And is your environment such that everyone has the right to have a voice and speak up without fear of reprimand? And the minute you create that space, you start getting real, honest conversations. And the minute you start real, honest conversations, that's when you really are going to start breaking down any biases that you might have in your culture. One of the interesting bits about that is what's the organization you want to have? I think it's kind of important that we make sure that this is a bottom-up approach as opposed to purely top-down. It's all well and good that we as a management team or I sign up the organization, but until you get a culture that really owns it at the base level and creates the teams because that's where the work is done. They're engaged. They've got to do the collaboration. You know, it is that we have working groups and engagement, not only across jurisdictions, but across firms, organizations, within businesses. So it's really making sure that we kind of live and breathe this stuff every day. How important is that bottom-up ownership of it? I think you're 100% right, Scott. Top-down doesn't work in any business principle, right? I don't think any senior management team and executive team is ever going to turn around and say that you have a success through top-down leadership. The challenge that sometimes happens is you don't get everyone coming along the journey, right? And that's what you're talking about, which is the collaboration that needs to happen at all levels. And the only way that collaboration is going to happen is to be able to have that psychological safety and more importantly, to have that feedback loop. So it's not just the top-down messaging, but what are you hearing from people at all levels of the organization, right? It's great to have an edict that comes from the top buying in. But if there are challenges to deliver against that, you need to be open to hearing it, to be able to then go, right, we didn't recognize that. We didn't realize that was a blind spot. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. Let's work together. And how do we find a way to mitigate that and find the path forward? That requires a lot of trust to be able to turn around and go, top of the house, that's great that that's what you want to achieve. However, we still need to do the following things. So being able to create the trust to be able to have those feedback loops. Part of that is going to be the need for senior teams to be able to start having open, honest conversations. The ones that are going to be uncomfortable as well. And the most successful companies, I think, along the DEI journey are those that are willing to put their hand up and say, look, we realize we've not gotten it right, but we are committed to doing something about it. The minute you've got that type of authentic leadership and that type of a voice to turn around and go, we get it, we've not gotten it right, but help us get it right, that's going to start breaking down a whole bunch of barriers. The one thing that I would also say is, I think the most junior 
workforce needs to realize that they've got a part to play here too. I talk to graduates a lot saying, there is an obligation on you to help make this happen as well. Someone like me, I've been working for two decades now. I've had a very different lived experience. I don't understand what it's like to be in university now and looking to start in the workforce or being your first job out of school. It continues to shock me that whether it's in the US or in the UK or across Europe, statistics still show that 49 to 51% of graduates go back into the closet entering the workforce. How? I don't know, right? The world is so different to the way it was. You're having conversations around this. We see corporates marching in pride parades. We see real public commitments to diversity. Yet the next generation is still scared to come out, for example. And so it's incumbent on those coming into the workforce to turn around and say, this is what we need. And this is what our lived experience is. And if they're not willing to be open and give that feedback, then despite any best will of intention, senior management teams just will never get it right for everybody because they need to understand what the true lived experience is. So I think it's incumbent on everyone to be part of that conversation and be open to hearing the developmental feedback points. That's a great point. I have three daughters. One just entered the workforce. One's about to enter the workforce post-university. They're all asking important questions and questions that I kind of haven't thought about in some time. And what is the message from the top? What are they taking away? How do they view it? And that's a great perspective, not only as a dad, but as a manager and a leader. It's really important to think about that. And it's been eye-opening. It doesn't make my job any easier in terms of how I, as a father, kind of advise, but I can provide some perspective on this corporate life that I live in right now. Now, one of the things we've been working on and is the recently we just launched it this year, we're really excited about it, is called the Future Leaders in Derivatives Program. And the goal of this program is to give opportunities to a diverse group of potential and future leaders from a wide range of geographies and disciplines and also backgrounds. We do want to create a diverse culture and we want to give people who haven't certainly been on the panels or in the working groups and who are our futures in the derivatives business, the opportunity to speak up and create a forum for them to engage and and get their insight. And we've given them two interesting challenges to give us a perspective on what the future of derivatives would look like around ESG and around technology. What advice would you give to make sure that this group is diverse and as engaged as it can be? We really need to get the most out of these people and to get their perspective. Yeah, look, first of all, a huge kudos and congratulations to ISDA for getting this off the ground. I think it's brilliant to see. And I was able to get a sneak peek at the challenges as well. So I look forward to seeing what comes out of it. Look, I think the engagement piece is is the biggest thing to focus on. And how open to shocking the system is ISTA, right? And in giving them all of this great talent that has come into the program, have they been given free reign to completely turn things on their head? Einstein looked and defined the word insanity. And insanity to him was doing the same thing over and over again, but somehow expecting different results. Right. And I'm not suggesting that anything that we're doing, what it is doing, is insane. But what it goes to is this notion of shocking the system. And are you willing to rip up 
whatever piece of paper there was and come at it from a completely different angle. Now, it doesn't mean that we can get there overnight, but if you empower the next generation to really be able to come up with perspectives and ideas that are novel and that might not get 100% buy-in because they'll need time and socialization for people to get comfortable with, I think that's the greatest thing. Empower these future leaders who have diverse voices to go forget about what there was. If we were starting from scratch, what would you say? And how would you approach it when we think about ESG and derivatives, right? And how do you think about technology and everything that we're trying to drive with automation and otherwise in the derivatives markets? Don't see what has been done over all of the years as your guardrails. Because look, I think perspective can either become your prison or your passport. And you don't want the perspective of how it's always been done to all of a sudden restrict what these future leaders might come up with. Well, I can assure you that their mandate is to think big because the current straitjackets and that's the way it's done is just not acceptable. We're pushing the envelope on so many different areas and we'll get to this around documentation in particular. <laughs> Change is hard. So we'll certainly give these future leaders the reign and the opportunity to think big. And we look forward to seeing what they come up with. And that's what I love because I think there is change and change is needed, but change scares people, right? So I tell my leadership team and others, I think fear is a privilege. That means that there is growth and there's something more exciting to come. So it would be really stale and stagnant and boring otherwise. So embrace the fear. It's a good thing. And that means that we're on a journey of change. We are gradually coming out of the coronavirus pandemic, which was a period of extraordinary change in the way people live and work. How has this remote working changed and how should we think about the DEI issues in particular? There's probably good and bad with all of this. How do you think about that? The pandemic was horrible and continues to be horrible for a lot of people around the world. And you know, if I think some of my people around the globe, they're still not able to come back and return to offices. It was hard, the mental health on, I think, all of our people in the industry, I think mental health on children, which is one thing I think no one spoke about and focused on. I can tell you right now, as much as I loved all the time with my son, I learned that I am not a good educator when it comes to teaching a 10-year-old. But despite all of the challenges that there were, and I know there's a lot of literature right now talking about the fact you're talking about what flexible working looks like, that you know we've hit the fourth industrial revolution. What I think was a positive, always silver lining type of person, the positive I think for me was, I think there was a diversity revolution. And what I mean by that is all of a sudden, we broke down so many barriers and we saw people for their authentic selves, right? If I think about parents, and I'm sure, Scott, it was the same for you, right? All of a sudden, it became okay to turn around and say, I can't do this call right now. I need to get my kids logged on for their studies or I need to go prepare lunch for them or my kids have issues or they run in in the middle of the most senior challenging negotiation you could possibly be having. And that became okay. But every single parent, those challenges were challenges that we all faced as working parents. 
before the pandemic as well, that it wasn't safe or okay to turn around and say, I need half an hour or can we move this meeting an hour later because people were scared to say it. Likewise, all of a sudden we saw people for their real selves, whether it was whatever their socioeconomic backgrounds were. We saw people's real accents coming out. No longer were people putting on a corporate uniform and this image as they walked into their office buildings, wherever that was, and presenting who they thought they had to present. No one had the headspace or the capacity to be able to be anything but their real selves. The data speaks for itself. Business continued. Business boomed. Things got done. Teams stayed connected. Actually, we saw a lot of teams engage so much better through the pandemic because all of a sudden, we all became honest about talking about what we were all going for. And it goes back to that authenticity piece. And so, look, it's not that it didn't come without its diversity challenges, of which there were some as well. But I do want to focus on the fact that I think we really had this great accelerator to start seeing authenticity and seeing that it was okay. It didn't have a negative impact on business. And so as we try to maneuver what the new world order looks like and people returning to work, I'm really hoping we don't go back to a culture where people feel that they need to be anything but the individuals they were during the pandemic. But in that team's environment, everything was kind of more purposeful. You'd arrange a meeting, you'd have your team's call or Zoom call, whatever it's going to be. You were still at arm's length with some of your colleagues. Did that break down barriers? It feels like we just didn't address certain things over that period. And especially tough conversations like DEI. I fully agree with you. I think organizations just could not focus on some of the networking that we needed to do some of the sponsorship, some of the mentoring, all of those other things that are so important that you need to have from an organization for its talent workforce, 100% agree with you. We didn't have, no organization had as much time to be able to focus on that, especially in an all-virtual environment. But that doesn't take away the fact that for the first time ever, we had an honesty And we saw organizations turning around and going, you are who you are, and that's okay. And you're still delivering, and we are still succeeding. And that's the key. And I don't know if we were ever in offices that we would have ever had that positive reinforcement message. You couldn't create that despite the best policies, because all you would do is we would have a corporate hymn sheet, Scott, where we would turn around and say, of course, bring your authentic self to work. And of course, that's not going to have any issues. And we know you're going to all succeed and everything will be okay, people might be scared if they're not trusting, right? We created that environment. Everyone had to live in it. And we see that it was okay. Well, let's just make a commitment that as we come back and we think about hybrid ways of working, that we address this head on and just what's the best way to deal with this. We talked earlier about the change in the way we do some of the work. You are the head of policy and documentation, and you deal with some of the biggest challenges facing the derivatives markets, including the implementation of initial margin for non-cleared. You've probably got a little bit of eyebore going on. As the scope of the rules change and we think about implementation of all of these regulations, we're also trying to go to a fully digital 
legal and documentation standpoint. We want to digitize the definitions. We want to develop legal standards that are digitized and put on platforms so you can have multilateral negotiations. How are you thinking about this and how big a change is going on in the legal and definitions and legal documentation work in derivatives? I think standardization and automation, it is necessary. There's no question about it. Conceptually, looking at this does work on the common domain model. You standardize terms across templates so that everyone can look to use the same terminology across their clauses. And I think that is brilliant. And I think you will see a lot of members across the industry turn around and say, yeah, standardization across common terms and documents is super helpful because all of a sudden you're going to start comparing apples to apples. It's great for governance. The automation piece is key because it'll speed up negotiation times. I think where the challenge is, is if it happens only piecemeal and only parts of the industry start doing it, that is where your challenge is going to be, which is you almost create more challenges because you've got all of this multiple bifurcation and different market participants doing different things, perhaps different clients doing different things with different brokers and all of a sudden, when it then comes to a processes perspective, it becomes much more complicated. I would love to see much more happening across the automation space. It is something you know, that we are very focused on. If we talk about you know, ISDA masters and we talk about CSAs or anything of a similar type nature, which is commoditized and cuts across so many market participants, I think there very much is a path forward. What we do need to see, though, is everyone hold hands and go on the journey together. Because until that happens, there is a risk that you actually create bigger issues through a bifurcated model. We'll see how this 2021 definitions moves forward and how they're adopted and add to, I think it's transformational way the market will deal with the definitions. It's going to be more of a golden source. You won't have the addendums anymore. We've put an end to that. It's always going to be updated. So that's going to be a fantastic improvement. I'm so excited to no longer have color-coded paper booklets and all of those paper supplements with you know my scribbles and my tabs all over them. That's the future for certain. Now, you've been such a proponent of diversity, equity, inclusion in the financial world. What advice would you give to a young person embarking on a career in financial services today? If it hasn't come out in our conversation today, Scott, I hope folks realize that you are the future. And your diversity is the key selling point. Every organization needs it for their financial success. Organizations need it because regulators now want it. So don't shy away from your diversity or your adversity, but actually be proud of it and own it and realize that you, as a result of whatever you have gone through because of your diversity, that's actually going to give you skills that in a corporate work environment and in the financial industry, you will be able to capitalize on. And I think we need to reframe the thinking that being diverse or those of us in diverse communities, we've always been told that it is a problem and a challenge. And I'd love you all to reframe your thinking and actually see it as a great positive and fly the flag. The other thing is, the call to action to you is be the change that you want to see. That feedback loop is huge. And so it is one thing to turn around and you should always hold companies accountable 
for what they're doing in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space and make sure that they have a genuine commitment. But your lived experience and where you're coming from is so different from the top of the house that if you're not helping drive that change and feedback, then an organization will never be able to help support you and make sure that it is current to your needs. And finally, it's one of the things that I find all juniors say is, but I'm new and no one wants to listen to me. Find your voice. And you don't necessarily need to be overly confident to stand up and write to the CEO or to somebody senior. Find that mentor or that more senior person in an organization that'll listen to you who can then amplify your voice because they have the connections and they have the network. And then be able to transform what is being done as a result of the feedback you've given for your lived experience. So remember, you're the future. Please, please, please be the change you want to see. And don't be afraid to find your voice. Two of you, you've been a great guest. You've given us a lot to think about. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Look forward to speaking to you again soon. Scott, you covered a really important issue there, diversity. And you also touched upon documentation. And I thought Tuvia had some fascinating insights on both of those issues, actually, in terms of what's changed and what more needs to be done. Well, you're absolutely right, Nick. While one might not usually conflate the two issues of DEI and documentation, Tuvia's observations on both were very prescient and timely. On DEI, it's clear just how far we have come as an industry over the years, avoiding groupthink and, and seeking diversity of thought really wasn't on the radar previously. And now it's more central to the conversation, but we have some way to go. On documentation, we have seen an extraordinary amount of change in recent years, and we've moved closer to a fully digitalized negotiation, drafting, and execution of documents. But again, here we have some opportunity for growth and development. And Tuvia's words about making sure we all do this together resonates with me, certainly. We made some real progress on the launch of the 2021 definitions, which sounds like he's up for So that was great to hear. Great to hear indeed. Two really important issues, diversity and documentation that we'll be coming back to. But with that, we've come to the end of our final episode of the year. We've had a great range of guests in 2021 covering the full gamut of industry issues from sustainable finance and crypto assets to capital, benchmarks and margin. I've no doubt we'll revisit many of these topics in 2022, as well as breaking new ground. And I'm looking forward to welcoming our guests in the new year. In the meantime, to all our listeners from around the world, we wish you a happy and healthy holiday season. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.